0: The growing popularity of e-cigarettes over the past decade has complicated tobacco policymaking. Policies aiming to reduce high rates of vaping among adolescents and those focused on helping current adult smokers quit, including by making e-cigarettes more available, can be directly at odds. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Abigail Friedman, an Associate Professor in the Department of Health Policy and Management at the Yale School of Public Health. Dr. Friedman has co-authored a perspective article about reducing harm caused by tobacco products among both adolescents and adults. Dr. Friedman, how do adolescents tend to use e-cigarettes and what are the effects of e-cigarette use in this population?
1: So just to give you a sense of the scale, about 9.3% of youth, that is for the most part when we say that we mean middle and high school students, use some tobacco product. 7.6% use e-cigarettes. And by use, I mean, have tried one in the last 30 days. Actually, when you get down to brass tacks, only about 40% of that 7.6% have used frequently. That is 20 or more days per month. And so these are products that, for those who aren't familiar, they're electronic. They heat a solution that contains nicotine, which is then inhaled as an aerosol. Many kids prefer flavors, which is the topic of a lot of current legislative debate.
0: On the other side, What evidence suggests that e-cigarettes can help current smokers quit using cigarettes? And and how do e-cigarettes compare with other tools that can be used for quitting smoking?
1: So we have both general observational studies and RCT, that is randomized controlled trial evidence on this. We have randomized controlled trial showing that e-cigarettes compare favorably to nicotine replacement therapy in terms of cessation. And we have a meta-analysis of the observational and RCT studies which suggests that it's particularly the adults who are using the products regularly that show increases in smoking cessation. So when I say cessation, I mean cessation of combustible cigarettes, not cessation of e-cigarettes.
0: In your perspective article, you describe how some policies that are intended to support either the goal of reducing vaping among adolescents or the goal of helping adults quit smoking could undermine the other goal. Can you explain why that's the case?
1: Yeah, so it's a really interesting situation because for a long time the tobacco research world was kind of all on the same page. But when e cigarettes came along, what we saw is a more rapid decline in combustible cigarette that is, smoking rates occur. And we've seen increasing evidence that adults who are using these regularly are more likely to quit combustible cigarettes. Now, combustible cigarettes. Are the primary driver of tobacco related health outcomes. And just to give you a sense of scale, smoking is responsible for about one in every five to six deaths annually in the US, about a third from cancers, the others from cardiovascular, cerebrovascular, pulmonary diseases. So we're talking about an intensely lethal product when we talk about combustible cigarettes. The evidence on e cigarettes is that they are less lethal than combustible, but there's a lot of debate about how much less. So Trade-off is complicated here. Adults who are switching from combustible cigarettes to electronic cigarettes are thought to be reducing their risk, by many thought to be substantially reducing their risk. But the concern is that youth find particularly flavored e-cigarettes very attractive and that this might be bringing youth into nicotine use who either otherwise wouldn't have or are going to transition to combustible cigarettes from e-cigarettes. Now, the evidence for that is actually not as strong There is the possibility that the kids who try e-cigarettes are also kids who are prone to risky behavior more generally, and there's some evidence to back that up. So it's hard to pin down the transitions for youth here.
0: In fact, you write that some localities have addressed the problem by restricting the sale of these flavored tobacco products, which are popular among adolescents, to adult-only retail outlets. So what are the benefits and what are the limitations of that sort of policy?
1: So what we're talking about here are flavor restrictions, and these vary drastically across states and localities. The most um, complete and extreme version would be banning sales of all flavored tobacco products of all kinds in all retailers with no exemptions. And then there are some localities where they've done this, but they've included an exemption for certain kinds of retailers. The idea here is specifically that you would move the flavored products to retailers that kids don't enter. So tobacco stores with age restrictions. Now, the complication here is that most of these policies focus on e-cigarettes and flavored e-cigarettes. Note that there are menthol cigarettes, but flavored combustible cigarettes are not available other than menthol. So the question is, if you move the most appealing version of the vaping product to a 21 plus location, are you going to see more people at convenience stores, gas stations, et cetera, choosing the more lethal product? So that's the concern. Our suggestion here is that in order to make sure that we're not taking the product that's most appealing but also less lethal away in a way that leads to more smoking among those who continue their nicotine use, we should actually just move all of the products that contain nicotine to 21 plus stores. So the idea here is that instead of creating a situation that might benefit youth, but might harm individuals who are smoking and would quit, we're going to actually take all of these addictive products and move them into a place that would be harder to access for youth and would reduce temptation at the cash register for adults who may just be going in to get a snack or to pay for their gas and don't want to face the choice between cigarettes and continuing to stay clear of those drugs.
0: So what political hurdles would be associated with this approach? And are there solutions that might face fewer barriers?
1: So of course, if you actually tried to implement a full ban on sales of nicotine products outside of age restriction venues, both convenience and grocery store owners and groups that represent them. And the industry, the larger tobacco industry would definitely exert their influence, whether through lobbying or other forms of political influence or advertising. So that could be very difficult from a political perspective to get through. There's an alternative, which is specifically to move all products that are sold with nicotine in them in stores that admit underage individuals out of sight. So, the research on this talks about the tobacco power wall, which you've probably seen if you go into a gas station and you're at the cash register and you look up behind you is the wall of tobacco products. And what we know from this is that exposure to that wall increases evidence of both youth susceptibility to using the products and actual youth smoking. So the idea would be to move all of those products either below the counter, out of sight or behind some other partition so that they can't be seen and get rid of point of sale advertising in these stores unless they don't admit minors. So in that case, a vape shop that doesn't admit minors could continue to display their products in the store, obviously not outward facing, but a gas station, which does admit kids would have to make it so that the five-year-old who's going to get a candy bar can't actually see that there are tobacco products on sale. The benefit here is not only are you reducing access and exposure, but you're reducing temptation because they aren't even seeing these products and people who have tried to quit are not even seeing these products, which benefits both youth and adults.
0: Finally, and moving in the direction that you've just been talking about, how could stakeholders who are focused on preventing adolescent vaping and those focused on helping adult smokers to quit collaborate more effectively to reduce overall harm associated with tobacco products?
1: That's a great question. There is some need to recognize a common goal. At the end of the day, people who are on either side of this debate want to reduce smoking-related morbidity and mortality. And getting ourselves on the same side of the table in that respect is necessary. Now, one way to do that is to identify policy options that don't privilege one group over the other. We've been seeing in the last five years, a lot of movement towards a specific policies that people are getting behind, whether it's taxes or flavor bans or age restrictions, people are getting behind a specific policy that's been put forth. What we need is more attempts to see what policies are still on the table that are good for everyone. And this is one really great example, moving these products away from areas where kids will see them and into areas where they can be more effectively kept away from kids where compliance can be better ensured, and where adults don't have to face temptation if they don't want to is good for everyone. So getting behind specific policies and putting forward specific policies that meet that criterion is a valuable first step to getting the tobacco research community on the same page and reducing the morbidity and mortality from tobacco-related diseases. The punchline here is that the idea that we can't help both youth and adults is a false dichotomy. First of all, the groups aren't independent. Parental smoking is one of the primary risk factors for youth smoking. Between that relationship and health effects from secondhand smoking, we expect that reducing combustible tobacco use among parents is going to be good for kids. Moreover, some of those adults who use e-cigarettes to quit are 18 to 24 years old, which means their brain development and patterns of tobacco use are typically more consistent with late adolescence than older adulthood. There's also an ethical problem here. We shouldn't choose between youth and adult lives if we can avoid doing so. There's a moral imperative to identify and implement policies in a way that promotes health for both of these groups before we fall back on options that may cause harm. We could put forward one such policy option as we do in this article, but there are certainly others. Researchers, clinicians, and policymakers need to work together to identify and prioritize regulations that serve the entire population.
0: Thank you, Dr. Friedman.